so the first thing i would do is if you've got an initiative and you think it's a good idea you need to resource it and you need to get it done and you need to adequately resource it and and once you do that and get it headed in the right direction put a ring fence around it and basically put up those project boundary conditions that we talked about and give the project manager or the scrum master who's working on that for you the ability to basically operate freely. But Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with John Carter. If you missed part one, please go back and listen about his time at Bose and helping invent the noise-canceling headphones and doing a large roll-up in the audio side of consumer electronics. John, I think maybe uh, a good place to start here is you know, if somebody comes to your website, tcgen.com, tcgen, what is, what is kind of the main focus of this consulting firm you've got these days? That's a really good question because I get that asked a lot. And what we basically do is we help companies innovate better and faster. And typically we do this <clears throat> with the most important part of their portfolio of activities, which is in the product development side. We're a firm believer in <clears throat> growth through new products and services and growth through differentiation. The margins are higher in differentiated products. It's easier to sell and to market. And in general, we help companies achieve differentiation and execution. The, there are some adjacent fields which are often used, or rather often confused with what we do. One is in project management, and we don't do project management per se. We help really executives manage the process of project management, i.e. we help with how the organization with 100 teams does better rather than working on an individual project. The other thing that we don't do, besides we don't do project management on a given program, is we don't do what one would call design and development. In other words, we don't do industrial design or work on a napkin sketch and create uh, manufacturable drawings, but rather we work on the process of doing that. In other words, for example, should a firm employ an outside design firm, where would that make sense and how would they best apply it? I think the best way to answer the question, though, Jess, is to give you some examples of engagements we've done with Apple and Amazon and GE and a host of other companies, big and small. And that is that what we we had done at Apple is looked at how they developed products. And it was very interesting because what they wanted us to look at was, in fact, metrics for product development, i.e. how you measure your capability and speed and so forth. But it clearly became obvious that what would really be most beneficial is help them scale with product development and then measure how fast you're scaling, but, but actually lead with scaling, not lead with metrics. And that's another thing that I think is really important that, that we do is we listen to what organizations want and we help them achieve it. So anyway, the, the situation was 
that we were brought in, we, we looked at the current situation at Apple, and we had some ideas about how to do product development faster and simpler. And we focused on improving their product development in a way that I would highly recommend to your listeners, and we call it inch wide, mile deep. And that's the way I, I work on engagements today, as we did helping Apple with their new product process, or ANPP, as it's called. And it's used across all the product divisions, including iPhones and iPads and computers and services and so forth. But anyway, if you what look at... What does that stand for? That oh, Apple New Product Process, ANPP. And the whole idea was really to help the organization scale quickly its product development process. And one of the managers said, and I think this is a good way of describing what we do, is we help them make better decisions faster. And that's what he described our work with the teams. One of the really cool things that we've, we've developed and we worked on and views with many clients is this notion of having boundary conditions for projects. So imagine a project development activity where you clearly define the minimum viable feature set, the date you'd like to see it, the cost you want to spend to develop it, and a couple of differentiable features. Well, you could represent each one of these, let's say, as sides of a polygon. Let's say, um, in this case, maybe a pentagon, five sides having five boundaries. And one of the things that we found pre-agile but is also valid very much so in the agile environment we find ourselves today, is if the team and management have a contract where they agree on the boundary conditions for a program, then if they're inside it and agree to tell management if they're going to cross the boundary before they cross it, that frees the team from micromanagement and supplying endless reports and sitting in endless status meetings because there's trust between the product development team and their executives that if there's a potential boundary break coming in the project, that the team will let management know. And we set up uh, systems with, with organizations where the, the exception management is done in hours or days, not done in, let's say, weeks or months. So we really work with firms for rapid decision-making. Also, we work on innovation, and we really help teams create a better way to innovate products. One of the best things that we've done, and recent client example, is created a so-called venture board within the company, and we created a special organization, which we call a protected space. And the protected space enables the team to really operate without a, a lot of bureaucracy. It's kind of like the boundary conditions, but here it's applied to innovations. In this one organization where we set up a, a venture board, we interviewed where we discovered about 25 ideas that were worth pursuing. We sorted those down to the top two or three ideas. And then we convinced the managers of those various individuals to, to allow them to be lent to our discovery organization. And there we went through a series of rapid iterations, taking this innovation, testing it, maturing it, getting customer feedback, iterating on it many times, and basically helping to nurse the innovation up so it could stand on its own. At the same time, 
working with other executives in other parts of the organization who would eventually own these innovations, i.e. have to sell it or support it, so that they had advance warning that this was coming down the road. We just didn't say, we're here, now you've got to sell this too, or now you've got to build this and, and support it too. But we worked with them before the transfer out of this discovery area or protected space. And we set up this venture board to oversee the investment, which we asked the company to invest the equivalent of about $10,000 per engineer. They had a lot of engineers, so that adds up to a lot of money. That was then the yearly budget for this discovery space, executing with the venture board and delivering innovations. And so this was a great example of how you can take a system great ideas and great people and organizations and unlock them. This works so much better than innovation tournaments or 20% time and so forth, because to achieve an innovation, you need full time, you need focus. You actually need concentrated effort and investment, not for it to be, you know, essentially 20% of your hours in a week. And is it's not best done by contests where people submit ideas. You really want someone who's really thought deeply about this idea, has done some incremental investment, and then really has an entrepreneurial sense. And, and in the selection of the three teams out of 25, a big factor, and this is true in private equity and venture capital, is you bet on the people. And so we look not only at the quality of their idea, but the quality of the people. So that was an example of, of a system that we worked on, on the innovation side, which is something that we do. And the other, in case of Apple and Amazon, worked on the product development process itself, how decisions are made at key points and what teams do to deliver progress rapidly on their product program. Those are some examples of some of the things that we do now, Jess. And are, are some of those things in your book or, or people who want to connect with you and find out more about this? What's Where should they be connecting with you on social or? Well, sure. I, uh, you can definitely check out the book. It's called Innovate Products Faster, and it's available on Amazon for either digital or, or print, print acquisition. That book has 40 graphical tools, which really take some of the best practices that we've used and applied at these companies and shown to, to, to work and to be beneficial. I'm a big believer in, in images and graphics and the ability to condense an I- a powerful idea in, in the case of a chart, graph, drawing, or icon. And so this book is filled with ideas that would help those that are on their journey. It also talks a little bit about the approach that we favor, which is inch wide, mile deep, and, and also predictive metrics. And these are two important factors that I really think are important, lessons talked about in the book and lessons that we've applied. First, inch wide, mile deep simply means that you, if you wanna, let's say, improve time to market or improve predictability, those two things on the execution side, or you wanna improve innovation, or you wanna improve margin, those might be on the invention side, creative side, whatever the goal is, figure out what is the most important thing, a thing, a single thing that you can do that would make the biggest impact. And you work on that and you work on it hard and fast and quickly and you measure it. 
So we manage change by measuring behavior. And so if you're trying to achieve large-scale change at organizations that we've had as clients, you really need focus. And also you need to be able to see, well, are people, after you train them, are they actually walking the walk? Or are they giving you lip service? And so we actually include what we call predictive metrics, which are basically early warning indicators that describe how well and how deeply change is being seeded into the organization. And so what we do is with inch wide, mile deep, we give the focus to the effort. Now, an effort might take a year or a year and a half because you have to do, let's say, six things and you focus them on one at a time. But the whole idea is you actually do something, get it done, show it's beneficial, and then you move on to the next thing. And that's inch wide, mile deep. And predictive metrics actually give you confidence that the thing you just executed, the change that you just executed, was in fact uh, really absorbed by the company and working into the way it works. There's another tool that is related to these things, inch wide, mile deep, and predictive metrics. And that's uh, right out of the book and is really funny, and I think uh, listeners might, might enjoy employing this. And it's called an attitude influence map. So let's say you're trying to do something big, make some large changes in an organization. What you, you typically want to do is identify the key decision makers and executives that have to be part of this new change behavior, have to buy in, have to support, have to invest in, or what have you. And you plot each person by their initials as little bubbles. One axis, the left to right axis, is the degree to which they support or they oppose your change. Of course, this is subjective. And you can put plus 10 on, on the right end and minus 10 on the left end. And then the vertical axis is just 0 to 10. And that's the influence this executive has. So we have attitude, positive or negative, and influence, either zero influence or whole, a whole lot of influence. And what you do is you identify people in the top right quadrant, or excuse me, top left quadrant, which is high influence and great negativity. And you actually, the, the leaders of this activity would do this with, with just one or two people. This is not a public exercise or something you wouldn't want to communicate. But what you do is you do this influence attitude diagram you look at those people that have high influence but don't support what you're trying to do. And then for each one, you figure out a unique set of steps that you're going to apply to get them to yes. And there's a range. <laughs> of, uh, it, I know this sounds devious and p political, but actually it's, it's well-intentioned, but nevertheless it is focused. And then what you do is you go a scheme with each person, try and neutralize them or get them to support. This doesn't mean necessarily going over their head and telling their boss that they're not playing well at the playground, but rather what it, it might do is involve one of their peers to talk to them. Or maybe it involves them understanding what you're trying to do better. Or maybe it involves taking um, initiative that they're trying to uh, promote and folding it into what you're trying to do. But the, the you know people who have politics it's not for the best of the company. 
And although this feels like politics, it actually is for the good of the company. And we found it to be a tremendous asset when looking at large-scale organizational change. I love that. So many fun things. You know, we've had, you know, similar but different. We've had a number of folks on the show from some of the classified units of the special operations community and some of the counterintelligence specialists from the FBI that tried to get, you know, in their former careers, tried to get foreign spies to become double agents for America, you know, and, <laughs> right, sure. and it, it's interesting how dealing with humans is dealing with humans, you know, and that methodical, intentional approach, you know, I've seen it through their story successful in their world. So I'm not surprised to hear it here. But what I love is the visual aspect to it that you put on. Well, I think my next question is, I think about some of the work that we've done in the consulting space, obviously a different sector, but I feel like oftentimes I learn, I feel like I learn as much from the clients as they learn from me. If that's the case, is there anything that you feel like you learned from working with Apple? Well, I've learned lots. And and what you say is true. Now, there's this saying that the way the consultant tells the time is to borrow your watch. And, and there's <laughs> there's a little bit of truth to it, but really not much in that a couple things that you do as a consultant are different than just stealing someone's watch. The first is that you work with a wide variety of companies and industries. So you have a much, much better view of what other people do. And that's incredibly valuable and was very valuable at Apple. The ability to bring in how other companies did things was was invaluable. Uh, to our success. The second thing that's really important is that writing the check is half the cure. In other words, if organizations think there's a bad enough problem that they actually want to apply budget to it, they've in fact taken the first step. And so one of the things that I've learned is the importance of orchestrating the pain message and really working with that and keeping focus on, you know, trying to to reverse that and and produce greater joy rather than greater pain. I would say in, other, in many organizations, what we've learned is details or systems of, of work or frames of view that have been very helpful. One of the expressions that I picked up early along, which I think is very valuable, it's very basic, but that is happiness is a difference between reality and expectations. And you learn this quickly from a consultant because uh, organizations and you have very different culture. So you need to quickly find out from your clients what they need from you and you need to give it to them. And this, uh, this really goes back to the fundable uh, nature of listening. And certainly many clients have taught me how to listen, that's for sure. Also, the, the type of work that we do you really need to involve internal stakeholders as well. So another lesson that I think is really important, and maybe you found this too, Jess, in order to make systematic change, you want to move the organization to a different place to improve it, and you want to leave. And a good consultant wants to leave. And so the idea, though, to make a change permanent is you need someone who can work with you, who can absorb the know-how and carry it on uh, when you're gone. So that's another lesson is to make sure that you have someone in the organization who's a thought partner and, and will maintain the, the, the challenge uh, when you depart. So focus. And then finally, this whole measuring 
behavior, making change by measuring behavior, that's another thing that we learned at clients. We, we, we came up with that concept, but we certainly saw it was true as we applied it to organizations like Amazon and Apple and so forth. This whole notion of me, really managing change by measuring behavior. I, I mean, those are, those are some of the things either yeah. we've developed or hardened by clients that I'd like to share with you. Well, and, and can we maybe pick a p- couple of these? I mean, there's so many logos on this website of yours, IBM, HP, Fitbit, Cisco, all these people. So can we go through a couple of them? Like what's what's one thing special about Apple you didn't realize until you helped them? And what's one thing special about Amazon you didn't realize until you helped them? <laughs> these are really, really terrific questions. I'd have to say that a couple of things on Apple. Timing means a lot. We were the fifth consultant to be brought in and four other uh, individuals or teams couldn't do it. And so I think cultural fit was hugely important. I went to the first meeting with a tie and I didn't even last 10 minutes into the meeting before it was off. <laughs> that, you know, they have a culture and you need to follow it. That's certainly one thing that we learned at Apple. Amazon's very different. And there I was a lot closer to Bezos. I didn't meet with them, but I, I worked with people that had worked with him. And there are two really great things that I liked about, about that. One is that when Bezos was developing the Kindle, um, a marketing friend of mine who was working on on that program was in a meeting with Bezos and the CFO. And this fellow asked uh, Bezos what the budget was for marketing the Kindle. You know, what kind of advertising and promotion should they do? What expectations do they do they have? And turned to his CFO and he said, how much cash do we have in the bank? And at the time it was... I don't know, just short of a billion dollars of cash. And he turned around to my friend and he said, we have $758 million to devote to this product. In other words, there was no budget. <laughs> <laughs> we we're going to get this, be this done successfully. The second thing I learned from Amazon, and this is really true and is phenomenal, is they don't allow slides. So if you want to prepare executives for a meeting, you write something up narrative form. They really don't want and don't like slides. And I think that is so great because it forces people to think about the issues, not to format. Interesting. You know, we recently had the, I mean, there's so many things to think about that. You think about the level of thinking that requires rather than just going for the default, oh, we'll figure it out (laughs) mid-presentation sometimes, right? Right, Um, right. You know, we had the Chief Innovation Officer from Cisco on recently again. If you were to compare maybe a couple of learning something from Fitbit versus something from Cisco, any, anything's popped to mind? I know I'm putting you right on the spot, but. Sure, sure. And, and this actually is, I'm glad you selected those two companies because they're great in this dimension of how different they are. So, so I worked, did a project at Cisco. In fact, I've done many projects at, at Cisco. In fact, I can even contrast those two with his versus Fitbit. One project, though, was really about getting the engineers in front of the customers. And I think, believe it or not, Cisco on on this big router project actually really got the engineers and the testers and the whole team to interact with the customer in order to get them a better idea of what's really wanted, as opposed to just having the marketer talk to the customer. So that's one thing that Cisco did very well. 
uh, a challenge that Cisco had that Fitbit did not have is that Cisco, and this is in another uh, project, another area, they have a, a, a software platform that helps with communication and it really doesn't work very well. And it was really impossible for them to consider how they may want to do it differently because they had so much in sunk costs. Contrast that with Fitbit. Their, their Fitbit tracking devices are totally new to the world. It's their platform, clean sheet. They weren't constrained by a watch or any other constraints. And, and so the ability to actually give you a clean start is so amazing that in fact enabled uh, Fitbit to be so successful. They're now being acquired by Google, but they didn't have this legacy of, of supporting some sunk costs like, like Cisco did. I, there's there's another lesson too. I worked with the division of Cisco that purchased the flip camera, which was a video camera. And Cisco's had some forays into consumer electronics with Linksys and, and this flip digital camera. And in a very short notice, Chambers felt that Wall Street wanted the earnings to increase and uh, they destroyed basically all of their consumer business. So another thing to, to really be careful about is do these businesses fit with what you're trying to do it? Fitbit's a pure play. And so everything fits in the ecosystem that they're trying to do, which is measuring uh, behavior and giving users feedback. Uh, feedback. So I think this, this ability to stay focused on what you're true at is really useful. When Cisco moved out of the corporate world, they had difficulty selling to consumers. So stick to your knitting is another really important lesson. I love it. You know, I'd, I'd be interested in your advice. You know, we were talking a little bit before the interview about we're trying to do something demonstrably different with our investment fund. You know, we're not trying to raise money the traditional way necessarily. And this idea of building a media company, and, and we're specifically building it around essentially how to help entrepreneurs make enough extra money to purchase passive income from us. And so we're, we're trying to do interesting interviews with people like yourself and get attention so we can put free ads on our own shows. And I guess my question for you is, any advice on balancing the the rate of new ideas versus burning out your team? Like I'm a little bit famous for having way too many ideas. And we've got a little bit of a process going on right now where my one partner is basically the buffer from Jess and all his ideas. And he's kind of the <laughs> gate of like letting them through. So I don't just give the whole organization whiplash every week, you know, but any thoughts about wanting to scale innovation without burning out a team or, or any, maybe, maybe helping me with selection criteria on how I could think about things different to know what should be the number one focus and, and be okay with leaving other things on the back burner? Uh, great question. And I don't know um, really enough about your situation to really say, but I can say a couple of things that we touched on might be really helpful. The first is this notion of boundary conditions. And the second is inch wide, mile deep. So the first thing I would do is if you've got an initiative and you think it's a good idea, you need to resource it and you need to get it done and you need to adequately resource it. And, and once you do that and get it headed in the right direction, put a ring fence around it and basically put up those project boundary conditions that we talked about and give the project manager or the scrum master who's working on that for you 
the ability to basically operate freely, but to squeak if his boundary conditions or her boundary conditions change. And just one of those changes to the boundary condition might be for you to ask them to include a new feature or new initiative. And that the project manager should look at you and basically said, hey, we signed up this contract, quote unquote, and we have these goals that mm -hmm. you and I agreed to. And now what you're asking me to do will push us out of bounds. And here's what we recommend as a as an alternative. And you need to listen to them. So you need to have you find people with spines, give them the resources, agree on the goal, and then stay out of the way. They need help, step in. But also this notion of boundary conditions, they should squeak kind of, I use 20%. In other words, if it could take 20% longer if they added this new feature that you came up with or this new initiative, that's that's time to have a discussion about, is this what we want to do? Because we agreed on X and now we're not going to achieve X because of what you just did. Are you sure you want to do that? And to have this really explicit conversation might be real helpful for you. You know, it's funny when you were talking about that the first time around, I was thinking about that, that work training in the special operations community. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking one, you know, 25 year Navy SEAL client that I spent a lot of time with. He was always talking about this idea of left and right limits. And he, he really wanted to know, like, where are the goalposts? What are, what are our left and right limits here? And then he didn't plan on asking any more permission about other things that were happening. He was going to feel the flexibility within those. And I think I kept thinking about that concept from being the one doing the work. And as you say that, it makes me think, no, I actually need that as the one assigning the project. You know, that I give them the left and right limits and the goalposts and, and then stay out of their way. And I know it sounds so simple and I should have figured that anyways, but just something about the way that you said it made me think, okay, I contract them. You know, I get everybody in the team on board that we've recruited the right people for this. It's worth the money to resource it. And this idea of contracting and saying, here's what success looks like for you guys. I'll quit showing up and adding extra conditions every three days when I, when I think of a new one, you know, exactly. I hadn't thought about it as anyways, I liked the way you described that it was helpful. Thank you. Good, good, good. Yes. I mean, I, we just died a death from a thousand paper cuts and I'd say half the organizations that I work at are working on too many projects. So it's a common disease. I love it. Well, listen, you're, you're a pretty fancy guy. You get to speak at big events. You get people looking for your opinion all the time. What's a question people don't ask you enough? What's what's a soapbox What's a soapbox issue for you, or or what's a question that you wish people asked you more? You know, I uh, oftentimes we run into situations where there are functional imbalances, people that aren't doing their job, or the people aren't role uh, doing the right roles. And so I think a question that should be asked more often than it, it is, is do we have the right people and are they doing the right jobs? <clears throat> we did an engagement a while ago for a large uh, medical device company, big, big company, and they did not have enough product people. So they had a bunch of engineers working on projects, and when they, they needed a question answered about a key feature or specification or benefit, the, the product managers that were there were, you know, at, at sales conventions or weren't available. And so I think what organizations should do, and this is a real benefit of our, our ability to see lots of firms, is 
is basically for us to be asked, well, where do you think we might be short of resources? And be willing to realize that, <clears throat> let's say you've got $5 million R&D budget and a $5 million marketing budget, don't have rigid walls between those. And if you need to balance the organization by taking a few engineering headcount and hiring, <clears throat> canceling those and then hiring marketing in their replace, that would be a very good investment. So I think uh, to quickly answer, it would be to get a read on kind of, do you have the organizational capability to do what you're trying to do? I love it. You know, uh, I feel like this has been so informative for me. I'm actually looking forward to transcribing it up and like going back through it line by line and thinking what we should be doing at Greystoke based on your advice here today. So appreciate everything you've shared with us. If people do want to look, know more, if they want to follow up, if they go to your website, tcgen.com, tcgen, what's what's probably a good tab for them to start on? Or where's, where's a good place for them to start? Well, if there's interest in innovation, they might start with product development strategy. We've done some concentrated pieces and we have tools and, and ideas in, in that area. And it kind of merges both execution and innovation and many of the things that we've talked about. I love it. Well, appreciate all the time you've given us today. You bet. It was a real pleasure. And I look forward to hearing about you more in the future. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening.